Thanks for joining us in our series on the book of Ephesians. In this letter, we get a thorough view of God's cosmic plan of reconciliation and reunification in Jesus Christ. Its truths are vital to the Christian's understanding of personhood and the church. Cornerstone exists to declare and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people complete in Him. Uh, let's go ahead and turn to Ephesians 6 this morning. We'll be in verse 14 through 16. It is wonderful to be worshiping together. As you're turning there, I just want to remind you of something. Uh, maybe some of you were here this morning. Um, between 10.35 and 10.50, so between the services, uh, what we're doing is joining together to pray for the Real Malaya people, uh, for their salvation. Um, so we're just, we just about 10.35, we circle up here, uh, we'll pray together, and that'll be it. It's literally just to pray. That's the only reason we're getting together on that in between two services. So if you're in the second service and you plan to come in second service next time and you'd like to pray with us, come a little early. Uh, about 10.35, we ask everyone to get out, and we're just going to try to pray. That's what we're trying to do moving forward. So uh, that's just for your edification. And of course, you should be praying at other times. We don't have to pray on Sundays between services. Uh, you can and you're welcome to and we're excited to do that together to encourage one another in prayer as we continue to build this discipline and love for Christ and for others by praying, calling on God as it really kind of strengthens our own resolve and understanding of God's power. So um, you're welcome to come to that. just want to make that available. We rejoice in the truth that Jesus Christ has died, has risen again, and that he will return. We know these truths and we celebrate them together this morning as we proclaim Jesus Christ, and we need to be formed under the word. And thus, the time that we give the most time to in our services is not necessarily to music or any sound of a skit or anything like that, but to come to the word and for us to grow by it. So this is worship as we hear and believe and move forward and think and trust our God in the midst of this. If you're at home this morning, the same is true for you. We miss you. We want you back here as soon as we possibly can. We realize there are real reasons why you cannot be with us, and we love you. We are praying for you, um, and we miss you, and we're looking forward to the day that you will be able to come back and be a full encouragement to us as a body as well. Continue on. Let's go ahead and read Ephesians 6. I'm going to read 10 through 20, the whole section there. Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, and then we'll pray. This is God's word. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth having put on the breastplate of righteousness and, shoe, and as shoes for your feet, having put, on, um, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints." And also for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Let's pray together. Our dear Lord Jesus, we come to your word. 
you are the word, but now we come to your revealed word, the scriptures. We ask that you would drive them deep into our hearts, that your spirit would take us from people who love you but struggle in rebellion and continue to love ourselves to people who continue to look to you for our salvation, our strength, and our protection. God, I ask that this morning you would be working in our own hearts. We need your power, your strength. So we have a humble request. We are a needy people, and we ask you to work this morning. We thank you for your word. It is good. It shows us who you are. It is truth, and therefore we rejoice in this. We ask that we would be worked on by the Spirit today. Lord, that you would get past my words and the fumbling of potentially messing things up, but God, you would drive these truths deep down into our hearts. We love you, Christ. In your name we pray, amen. Last week we started with an introduction to the armor of God. So we kind of talked about it a little bit and kind of set ourselves up I mentioned many things last week, but probably there's two that are worth bringing up again. So I'm going to bring those again. While I was thinking of what I was doing last week, I realized it's maybe easier to think about it in the sense of guardrails. What I mean is we don't think a lot about guardrails. It's not like we're like, oh, did you see the guardrail over there? That's awesome. Or like no one's pinning it on Pinterest. No one's talking about guardrails all the time. But we're all very thankful for them. They make sense to us. We know that they're very helpful. Maybe some of you have had an experience where a guardrail saved your life potentially from going off a cliff, or we live around a lot of bridges here, potentially from going off into the water, or just potentially from veering into oncoming traffic and having some sort of head-on collision. We understand that these things are very helpful for us, these guardrails. Maybe if you haven't had anything that's quite that uh, exciting or uh, thrilling or traumatic, at least most of us can understand the beauty of the bumper rail at the bowling alley. I think this is something that most people are familiar with, and if you're not familiar with the bowling lane, welcome to America. Um, this is what it is like. You've got this long, straight, smooth floor, and you stand on one end with this very heavy bowling ball that has these three little holes in it. You stick your fingers in, weird. And then on the other end are all these pins, and you're trying to roll this ball straight down there so you can knock over the pins. That's the whole game of bowling. It's, it's not that difficult, except for on both sides of the lane are these ditches are these gutters, like a little trench on the right side and a little trench on the left side that if the ball goes in there, you're not getting it back out until it gets to the end and then it disappears in the floor and magically appears next to you. It's, it's kind of amazing. I'm not promoting like, like bowling necessarily, but you, you can do it. It's great. Well, let's get back to the gutters for a minute. These gutters are treacherous. And along the way, someone said these things are too embarrassing and too treacherous for us to continue to allow people to fall into these gutters with the balls, these bowling balls. So what they did was come up with the bumper lanes. And the bumper lanes get pulled up and the ball doesn't go in the trench. It stays in the middle of it. It's kind of like a guardrail from keeping you to go in these ditches over to the one side or to the other. Uh, essentially, the bumper rail is much like the guardrail to keep us in the middle going down straight without getting stuck in one ditch or getting stuck in the other ditch. It's meant to keep you going where you're supposed to go without getting stranded in one ditch or the other. That's kind of what I was trying to do last week when we approached the armor of God. I was trying to give us some bumper rails so we wouldn't veer off into one ditch on one side or veer off into the other ditch on the other side. 
you've got two ditches that we need to be careful of. The one side is the form of legalism, and the other ditch over here is this form of license, this idea that we can do whatever we want to in liberty. On the one side of legalism, you've got this temptation to think that we are fully responsible to muscle our way into godly living, almost to the point that's like apart from God. We can look like this in extremely disciplined, self-reliant, and even to the point of some sort of proud of the way that we're living our Christian lives. We almost like create and bear this armor of moralism, because it certainly isn't the armor of God. This can look, again, good, but the ditch is something we ought to be careful of because it is certainly not the armor of God at that point. To this, we were reminded from the three different Isaiah passages that this armor is not just ours, but it's actually the armor of God. It's divine armor. We learn that the armor is already ours if we are in Christ, and only in Him are we clothed in it. Again, it's divine armor. It is that which an unbeliever does not have. No matter how hard they try, they have nothing to protect them against the schemes of the devil. Therefore, this armor is a gift of God. It's virtues, it's character, it's the gifts that can only be experienced and used if one has been united to Jesus Christ. But on the other side, the other ditch is license or liberty, where we we end up abusing God's gift that he has given, thinking that since God has given us these things, And since he will protect us, that there's nothing that we must do to grow, that there's nothing that we must do to put on the armor of God, almost as if if we match up with the armor, it just comes to us no matter what, without us having to actually put it on. But the text was pretty clear about this too. If you remember, each piece of armor must be appropriated by faith. It must be fastened on or put on or taken up as each individual learns to act and speak like the Lord Jesus. In other words, there is a very deliberate movement on the part of the Christian church to act like God and to be like him in these areas of virtue and character. By faith in God, we work. We are disciplined. We practice. We act like him by his strength. So this was kind of the introduction from last week, those two things, trying to make sure we guard against either one of those things, move forward properly. But now we're ready to kind of move into this stuff. He's told us to stand firm to withstand in the evil day. And since it's, it's really bad because we're, we can't see what's actually going around us, we're not wrestling just against flesh and blood, but against these principalities and powers and these forces of darkness. This is what the church is called to do as we live out our obedience to all that Paul has already called us to in chapter four, five, and the beginning of six. If we don't realize that we are in the battle, we will not treat our Christian obedience seriously. And if we don't realize that our Christian growth and obedience are connected to the way that we stand firm against the evil one, we will end up looking like a soldier without armor. We will fret and struggle and strive without God's help, but rather in our own strength, trying somehow physically and mentally to outwit this incredibly powerful spiritual being. We can't do it. We'll rely on ourselves instead of the mighty warrior who has already conquered. And so we finally come to the nuts and bolts here of what it looks like for the church to put on the armor of God, for us to look to God for his strength and be outfitted for our time here on earth as we constantly draw closer to the day that Christ returns. Because we know he has not returned yet, and he will. And so we continue on to stand firm and in the power of his might. 
Let me read these things again. Verse 14, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Paul gives us six different pieces of armor here. So we've got the belt of truth, breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the readiness of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the spirit. Uh, each piece is identified with some sort of divine virtue or gift from God. Think about it for a minute. The, four, the first four, truth, righteousness, readiness, faith. These are all virtues and attributes that we are to learn and practice by God's power. Think of the last two, salvation, the sword of the Spirit, or that's the Word of God empowered by the Spirit. These are gifts given by God that we must respond to and use properly. I mean, there is so much good stuff here in this armor. Um, there's a guy named Grinnell, an old guy, hundreds of years ago, long dead pastor, who wrote a, a treatise on this, and I think it was over 1,400 pages long on these verses alone. I'm going to spare you that, and we are going to try to cover this in two weeks. We're going to try, and even at that, I realize I can't give you everything this possibly could mean. So this is a springboard for us to consider and use and understand and continue studying what Paul is giving to us here, an understanding of the Christian walk. Today, we're going to cover the first four pieces of armor, what I believe are the Christian virtues uh, for us to cultivate. And then next week, we'll finish up these divine gifts of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We know that each piece of armor causes us to focus on some aspect of Christian living that will act as protection from the evil one. The church will only be able to stand firm when we actively pursue this armor, the armor given to us by God himself, his armor. When we trust God and when we grow in him, we realize that we'll be outfitted for the, this battle. We will be wearing God's armor and we will be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So let's start with looking at verse 14, the first one here. We're talking about the belt of truth. Now this is pretty straightforward, uh, but it's important for us to make sure we understand what he means. What is the truth? Again, that may seem self-evident, but actually within Ephesians, he's actually given us a couple different things that this possibly could mean. If you go all the way back to chapter 1, verse 13, he says, when you heard the word of truth, there it is, and then he explains, the gospel of your salvation. And thus he is actually saying this truth is the gospel. And we know that Paul uses this word in other of his writings as well to refer to the gospel. So is this how we should define truth here? Well, maybe, and it's not bad, but Paul also talks about the truth in other sections of Ephesians. In chapter 4, he exhorts the church not to walk like the Gentiles. Remember this? He said, don't walk like the Gentiles in the futility of their minds. He said that they are darkened understanding. He even called us, us and them ignorant. In other words, that you don't know the truth. You're darkened in your understanding. Instead, he tells them to live according to the way that they were taught in Jesus. He says, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Verse 21, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. 
to put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through con- deceitful desires. You see how he's, he's putting these two things against each other, this deceitful desires that like somehow that that seemed like the truth, but it was just deceiving us. Continue, verse 23, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Another translation of that last little sentence there is created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. He's making a point here. He's showing us that our life ought to look like this, one that's governed by what is true. The whole point is that Christian, a Christian isn't to walk in falsehood, ignorance, darkness, deceit, but rather to walk in the truth. And this is an action, a lifestyle, a virtue. And yes, we should certainly be truthful people. That's actually kind of a given. We know we should be people of integrity, honest. And we should even speak the truth, right? Paul's told us that in 4.15 and 4.25, to not speak falsehood, but to speak the truth. But Paul's bigger point here is that we would be people who don't stick our heads in the sand of worldly philosophy and these deceitful desires around us. In other words, he's saying the common wisdom and truth that you think that you're experiencing over here on this plane, don't trust it. It's not real. You're philosophizing about figuring out where everything is coming from and what's right and wrong. It's not sufficient. It will be a lie to you. Your reason will not deliver the truth. But the revelation of God has delivered to us the truth. Don't operate as though what you are seeing and hearing around you is what is actually real. It isn't. In Christ Jesus, in the teaching of God's word, in divine revelation, you and I have been exposed to, if I can say it this way, the real truth. We're actually getting it to what is real and true and must be lived by. And it's certainly true that Paul uses this word truth to describe the gospel of Christ, but in every situation when that's true, think about this, where it's taken root, it means that that person operates with a new eyesight. They're enlightened. The gospel, the truth, has opened up their eyes to see what's really going on. Paul is calling us both to know the truth then and to live in this ultimate reality. Let me ask you then, what does this look like for you? I'll ask you, I mean, how can you stand making sure, as Paul says, that you have fastened on the belt of truth? I think it actually goes without saying, let's start with this, we need to know the truth. Like we need to actually understand, our minds need to comprehend what is true. Let me ask you this, how much time in your week do you spend being renewed in the spirit of your mind? Uh, this is, this is going to be a hard question because there's going to be a follow-up one here that's going to go back to Romans 12. You remember this. How much time, day in, day out, go ahead and count the numbers up, are you being conformed to this world? And then I'll ask you, how much time in your day are you using to be transformed by the renewing of your mind? How are you exposing yourself to the truth? What time periods of the day are you constantly being conformed to the world around you? Because if you're like me, I constantly have everyone around me pouring into how I'm supposed to think about the world, telling me different lies. Whatever media you look at, whatever workplace you're in, there's unbelievers and the lies that are around us constantly. So I'll start with this. Are you being transformed by the renewing of your mind? 
Yes, this means work. This means actually knowing the word of God. I'll give you three things. One is very simple. It goes back to like Sunday school stuff. We have been given the revealed word of God. It's amazing. We have a book that tells us the truth about the universe. It tells us the truth about who we are. It tells us the truth about where everything came from. It tells us the truth about where all of this is going. Guys, read your Bible. There it is. Read your Bible. Out of the 24 hours of your day, you can make time to read the revealed word of God, the thing that can renew your mind and help you know what the truth is. That's the first thing. The second thing, uh, there's a lady in our church I was talking to recently, and she is working on Bible memory. She's taking a few different scriptures and memorizing these pieces because you know why? She realizes that constantly in her life, people, situations, the media is constantly telling her things that she wants to believe and naturally does believe, but they're not true. They're actually fighting against what is true. And she knows she needs to actually have the scriptures there at the ready to think about and preach the truth to herself so she doesn't believe the lies that are around her. This is what we ought to be doing. Start with one verse, one that would speak the truth to you and you know you're constantly being barraged with falsehood around you. Memorize the scriptures. This is right for us to do. Then just thirdly, I'll I'll take one more stab at this. Listen and question the sermons that I deliver, the passages that I bring to you, the truth that I want to give to us to consider. And I don't talk about this very often, but each week, usually on Monday or Tuesday roughly, I post a worksheet that all it is is a sermon review. It goes through and asks questions about all the different parts of the passage that we work through. It's not difficult. I try to make it pretty simple. You can do one or two questions a day, something like that. Take that seriously. Do it with your community group. Do it maybe with your family. Maybe just do it by yourself. Allow these truths to be driven down deep so that you now start to think truly with the truth, what's actually going on. Um, Psalm 119, 160 says this. I love this. The sum of your word is truth. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Guys, we need the truth. We need to trust that God, uh, that living in this truth may not make sense when everything else around us screams that God is wrong, but we know God isn't wrong. This is not fake This is actually a picture into what is going on here. We should no longer live in ignorance, lies, and futility of our minds that comes from being children of darkness, but we should live according to the truth that God has revealed to us in his word. Ephesians 5.8, we already preached through this too. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. So this is the belt of truth. He goes on. Verse 14, it's not only the belt of truth, but also the breastplate of righteousness that we are to put on. I find that these two ideas are often put together in the Bible. This is interesting to me as I continue to study this. I just read Psalm 119, 160. Did you notice that they were actually put together in that Psalm? Let me read it again, see if you can hear truth and righteousness. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Same thing actually in Ephesians 5, 8, and 9 what I just read. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Last week we looked at Isaiah, two different passages. Isaiah 59, the Lord says that truth is lacking. He comes up with this problem. Truth is lacking. 
And along with many other things, we watch as God puts on righteousness as a breastplate to answer this problem. Truth is missing, he answers with righteousness. And Isaiah 11.5 says, Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Now don't get tripped up by faithfulness, because a right understanding of that word is integrity or truth. Again, he's putting these things together. My point in saying all this is that these things come up, and often we see these things together, but they are different, truth and righteousness. We often find them together and see they're closely related to one another. Here's a statement. Truth is the objective reality that has been revealed to us by God. Righteousness is the state of living by that objective reality. Uh, or you can say it a different way, righteousness is living according to God's true standards. Now let me be clear, when I say, that I, when I say this, I'm not talking about forensic righteousness. Uh, that's, that's that righteousness which is ours in Jesus Christ in our justification. I'm not talking about that here. It's certainly important and necessary for us to be able to do any righteous actions, but I think that he's talking about our response to God as our Savior and King. I'm talking about how we live according to God's righteous standard as Christians. Let me go back then. In the atonement, we understand that God has given us Christ's righteousness. We have broken his law, rebelled against God, and are deserving of God's wrath. But as Paul says, for those of us who are in Christ, there is salvation and joy and reward. In Christ, we stand holy and righteous and pure before God. He, the judge, says, yes, righteous. How? Only in Jesus Christ. But here in this second half of the book, I've talked, about, I've talked this to death, Paul is calling us now to live out who we are. Almost like since you are righteous before God in Christ, go be righteous. Obey God's righteous commands and live up to the standards of God's rules. And that's, that's why I say this. Again, truth is the objective reality that has been revealed to us by God. Righteousness is the state of living by that objective reality. Because truth encompasses all that is true in the universe, including living rightly before God and His true commandments. And when we walk according to these commands, we do righteously. We do good works, Paul says. Now, it might be that you and I say, impossible. No, but don't be confused. I'm not saying that you and I have it in ourselves to do righteousness. I'm not saying that you have been uh, you know, somehow able now, like, okay, you moved from this ledger to this ledger, now you can do it on your own. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps and, bootstraps and do righteousness. I'm saying that you have been given a new living identity, that only in that identity are you and I able to perform good works. Do you remember what Paul said at the beginning of Ephesians 2? I mean, this is a great way to think about this. I'm going to kind of paraphrase it a little bit for us. He says this, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. In other words, no righteousness, no holy living. It was impossible for you and me to do what was right, to do good works. But God, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. 
For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's not a result of works, for we are his workmanship. Get this, this is really important. Created. God, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So let me, let me put it this way, ready? We were dead, unrighteous. God made us alive, righteous in Christ. And now he has crafted us for good works, righteous living. This is how we have to think about this. This is what Paul is calling us to. In Ephesians 4.24, Paul tells us to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. In other words, we are to act and to put on the new self, to be like Christ, to act as one who is like God in righteousness and holiness. Well, here's the application again. I would ask you, are you concerned with holiness? If you are a Christian, are you concerned to act righteously? When I think about those two words, I'm totally intimidated, just letting you know. I know myself. I think like, am I, is my life concerned about holiness? Is it, is it possible that the way that I'm living would be a righteous way of living? Most of us know the truth, uh, but knowing is one thing and doing is another. Paul calls the church to righteous living. And in this context, we realize that it is not a duty, but a protection against the schemes of the devil. That's his whole point here. So brothers and sisters, let us pursue righteous living, committed to obeying God and knowing his, how good he is that this pursuit of God's strong protection is against the evils of the devil. We must pursue righteousness then together. So that's verse 14. Let's continue on and look at verse 15. Um, I told you we could spend so much time on this. Again, but I'm not going to do that. Verse 15, he says, And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. This one is a little different than the first two, right? I mean, it's, it's kind of clunky and difficult for us to say succinctly. Shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. And at first, we're not exactly sure what he's referring to here. Is he talking about gospel? Is he talking about readiness? Is he talking about peace? And the translation that we're using here is a good one. It adds a few words to smooth it out. But if I can give you the raw, raw translation here, it's just this. Having put on the feet with readiness of the gospel of peace. Not sure what that means yet unless we think this through, right? So it's having put on the feet with readiness of the gospel of peace. There are several different good scholars who debate this grammar, but most, it seems best for us to pull it back together and see that this is not the dressing of the feet in peace or the dressing of the feet in the gospel even. But it actually seems the best thing to connect this to is the readiness, that we are, in a sense, putting on these shoes of readiness. That would be like readiness or preparedness. The idea here is that church is not caught standing on its heels like, Oh, I wasn't ready. Ah, I don't, I'm not ready for this battle. I don't have a position ready. I'm, I, I'm unprepared. But of course, the, the question should be prepared for what or in what way ought we to be prepared or ready? And this is why this overall phrase is so clunky and longish. He says, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. We read that in our text here. And that is definitely an interpretation. 
and it's a good one. What I mean is that the translators of this, our ESV Bible here, they took the basic phrasing, having put on the feet with the readiness of the gospel of peace, a very difficult phrase, and they smoothed it out to read that the readiness is given by the gospel of peace. And I actually think this is totally legitimate and a good interpretation. But I also think that it limits the scope of what Paul is trying to say. And I'll explain that as I get there. We understand that he, what he's promoting is readiness. But then we have to think, how does the readiness connect with the gospel of peace? In what way is he talking about this? He says, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Of course, that would mean then that this protection that we have when we hold fast to the gospel, we've been changed by it, is now ours and prepares us to stand against the evil one who's going to throw all kinds of stuff at us. And this is right. This is true. It shows us that the gospel that has been preached to us has sunk down deep. It has changed us. I mean, this is what Paul says in Ephesians 1.13. He says this, When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The gospel has done something to us. It has changed us. It has sealed us with the promised Holy Spirit, and really it fortifies us as we prepare for spiritual battle. But that's not just that. Oh, that's, that's enough. It would be enough. It's also the readiness given by the gospel of peace. It's also the readiness with the gospel of peace. Uh, you're going to have to trust me here and work this through meaning that the Christian is protected by his active stance in proclaiming the gospel of peace as well. Now I get a little uncomfortable. You're saying like that this is our proclamation of the truth. Well, yes, last week we looked at Isaiah 52, 7. You remember this? Allow me to read it again. The prophet says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who bring good news, gospel, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The gospel of peace is not a proposition for us to keep in a lockbox. And somehow we're like, ooh, I found it. Let's keep it in here. This is so awesome. It is not the gospel proposition. It is the gospel message. You, you know what gospel means. It is the good news that means that it's not just something that we keep and hold on to inside this box. As if we found it, we're like, oh, we're glad about that. That's good. It is the message of Jesus Christ for the salvation of all the world. News that's so important and wonderful that it causes the believer in this passage to get up and run, to tell the message to anyone who will listen. It's a message of hope and victory and happiness even here. In Ephesians 2.17, Paul said, that this was our experience too. Christ, who is himself our peace, came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Guys, the very nature of the gospel is that the good news of Jesus Christ is to be proclaimed to all people. A Christian who understands the gospel properly then both receives it and proclaims it, gets it, and distributes it. Understand that this message is to be told. We are called witnesses over and over again in the Scriptures. And what Paul is saying is that this gospel of peace, both received and proclaimed, will make the church ready and prepared to stand against the evil one. It's grounds for a believer. It prepares them for the battle, and it shines the light on the wicked darkness of the unbelieving world around us. So, let me ask again. 
considering Paul's analogy here, have you given much attention to putting on the shoes of readiness with the gospel of peace? Do you treasure the gospel and give it out freely? Um, is it precious to you? How about this? Let's start in the first half. Does it, do you preach the gospel to yourself every day? The truth of who God is, highlighting his holiness and his creatorship, reminding yourself of our own rebellion against him, glorying in Jesus' merciful work of living and dying and the response of faith that we must live in daily. Maybe you're here today and you don't quite understand what I mean when I say gospel. Can I encourage you to talk with someone that you came with or any member here at Cornerstone or the pastors, any of us, please come talk to us. We would love to talk about the good news of Jesus because it's the truth. It is for all men. We would love to explain that Jesus Christ has made a way for sinners to be reconciled to our holy creator through faith in Jesus Christ, the sacrificial lamb who took God's wrath for us on the cross. Believers, is this message really precious to you? Do you understand the nature of the gospel? We like to talk about it. I, I'm putting myself at we, I mean me. But man, is it part of our DNA to speak the truth to our neighbors, to our families, to those who would be at our work with us? Do we actually care that the glory of God would be given out to all the world, that our God reigns? This is a call to us that we would be those that are like the messengers prepared to go and speak the truth, the gospel of peace. And we do so, we understand, this is, guys, this is not a guilt trip. It's not, everyone struggles with this in some way, I know. It's not a guilt trip. We understand that this gospel is the light of the world and that giving it away prepares us to stand against the evil one. Let's move on to the fourth piece of armor here in verse 16. He says, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Now, this piece of armor comes with directions, right? Uh, it comes with a, an intended use manual. It kind of right away tells us what's supposed to happen with this shield of faith. It's meant to stop the flaming arrows or darts that Satan hurls at us. It's meant to extinguish the fire and protect us from severe damage. Now, we already know that Satan and all his dark forces are prowling around on, after us. We know this from 1 Peter 5, right? 8 and 9, Peter says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Then he says this, Resist him firm in your faith. Paul's using the same idea here. We are to stand firm in faith, having the shield of faith. Guys, we, we, we cannot withstand him on our own. We cannot trust in ourselves. We are no match for this guy. We must look to God in total dependence. Listen, the devil is smart. He's deceitful. He's ancient. He is powerful. He is even patient in making us wait until it's time where he can really get us in one sense. And if you and I think about all the different ways that Satan attacks, doubt, fear, anxiety, lust, pride, physical harm, family problems, financial stress. When we think about all these ways, we realize that this isn't like some little devil on our shoulder trying to go against our conscience some way. This is a warrior prepared, dipping his arrow in pitch, lighting it aflame, and just aiming it right at our hearts. This enemy is out for blood, 
for our destruction. He's not some little bad guy against the little good guy. He is the one who is trying to destroy God's people. He's not just trying to trip you up a little bit like someone puts a string across the path in hopes that you will stumble. His goal is suffering and destruction. Paul describes his attempts as flaming darts. We are no match for this being. But there is hope in taking up the shield of faith. Now, I'll just make this quick comment. That doesn't mean faith in general. I hear this speak all the time in, in, in Christianity, and it's junk. Just everyone's got to have faith, faith in something, and they don't ever say what the faith is in. Paul makes no problems. He knows exactly what we're talking about here. This is about faith in God alone. There's no one else who could possibly save us from the flaming darts of the devil. The faith is in God and God alone, and in his faithfulness in the midst of our weakness. He can be trusted. And that's one thing I actually love about this little thing about the shield of faith. Scholars go back and forth about whether this word refers to our faith in God or God's faithfulness, faithfulness to us. For the sake of time, let me say that I actually, and it's legitimate to do so, believe that it's both. It's not a cop-out. It's a fair conclusion because of this. We see that God's character and virtue alone is what can protect us from the evil powers. This is his faithfulness to us in Jesus Christ. But we've also seen that Paul calls us to take up these things, to put them on, to grow in each of these virtues so that we might appropriate these virtues and become more and more like our Savior Jesus Christ. So let me ask you again. When does Satan attack you? When do you struggle with sin? And let me ask you this. When he does attack you, and when you do struggle with sin, at what point do you pick up the shield of faith and get ready? Do you understand the problem with the analogy if, 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 uh, you know, if we're to take it this way? Do you understand like the timing here? Like This is not about waiting until we're under attack and then somehow we can pick up this thing. The flaming dart already hit us. That's the point. We cannot somehow have an unprepared stance where we get hit with a flaming dart and then pick up the shield of faith. This is an ongoing understanding that we walk in dependence, complete dependence on God. These darts and arrows are swift and deadly. If we do not pick up the shield of faith now, we will find ourselves unprepared when the shot is fired. The point I'm trying to make here is simple. Today is the day of preparation, not sometime later. I can't tell you how many times I've heard someone say, yeah, I know I need to get right with God. I know I need to try harder and you know, I kind of get serious about my walk with God, uh, but I, I just can't right now. I'll, I'll kind of get to it. I'll, I'll work on it. I'll get there. When I hear this, I hear a dead, sickening, proud line of reasoning that wants to somehow clean itself up before it enters into the battle. That somehow, once I've cleaned myself up, I can then take up the shield of faith. Do you all hear how ludicrous that is? That somehow the enemy would wait till you clean yourself up in your own righteousness and then he'll shoot at you once you've done all this? Faith by its very nature is dependent on someone else. I mean, it's, it's a recognition that we cannot withstand a flaming arrow that strikes our body no matter how much we clean ourselves up and do our best in our own righteousness. It proclaims that I need someone else. In short, it's that I believe the gospel. 
This is a beautiful thing. It's, that's exactly what's going on here. Guys, this, is, this isn't like little temptations here, little temptations there. This is a way of life that we would live trusting God and trusting him alone, that we would live by faith. This is about you and I stopping, stopping with all the self-reliance and self-righteousness and even self-salvation at times. And instead, a joyous turning to God to be our protection. I mean, do you and I really think that we can build ourselves a shield that will protect us from the evil one? I don't think anyone actually would say that out loud, but I think probably our lives proclaim that that would be true. Sometimes we would rather try our best to do good and work to make ourselves worthy of God's love than bow to him in utter sinfulness and weakness and trust him to cover us in our need. There is no room for pride at all for the Christian. Just to remind you, you don't get to say, I did it. The Christian marked by repentance and faith looks to God for his covering, for his protection. It is God and God alone. Faith in God, the kind that he's talking about here, understands that no one is able to protect themselves and that it is God alone who bears his strong arm to protect his people. This is how we stand against the evil one by taking up the shield of faith, by trusting God, by being strengthened in the power of his might. We've covered a lot of ground today. Uh, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the readiness of the gospel of peace, and lastly here, the shield of faith. We see that being a disciple of Jesus is a glorious gift that calls us to put on the new man, to put on that which is ours in Christ Jesus. Paul isn't giving us something new He's actually enforcing the importance of putting on the new self, becoming like Christ in every way. Only in this will we be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. In these pieces of armor, we are reminded that our Christian living, our discipleship, being Christians, is in direct opposition to the wicked powers in the heavenly realm. So when Paul tells us to stand, having put on these pieces of armor, it's not some sort of a threat or a euphemism like he's trying to twist our arm like, hey, you need to do these duties. You're the church, you know, kind of like a parent saying, come on, kids, eat your vegetables. You need to do the chores. You need to act like Jesus. It's not some kind of silly duty that we need to do now that he's rescued us. This is a loving call to arms amidst the onslaught of the evil one, a gracious warning and encouragement to trust God so that our lives here will not end up in a shipwrecked faith, where we destroyed, but rather one that lives joyously, serving under the king who has conquered and will one day destroy all rebellion and reward those who have trusted in him alone. Far from arm twisting, this is a message of love and sobriety. Uh, we glory in the fact that this protection is ours. As we've trusted in Jesus Christ, these divine gifts and virtues are used and exemplified in the church, in us as Christians. So I'll ask you, are you engaged in putting on the armor of God regularly? Are you concerned at all about this? Let us lay hold of the truth and live by it. Let us live holy, righteous lives, ones that rejoice in God's standards and humbly seek to obey them. Let us treasure and distribute the gospel of peace and let, us be, let all this be done in complete reliance on God. In other words, in faith. Let's pray together. Dear God, we thank you for your word. 
uh, we feel absolutely incompetent and unable to do the things that you've called us to do. But we know in Christ we are able to do so. I thank you, God, for your word, which teaches and shows us and supports and upholds us, knowing that our identity in Jesus Christ has made us something new. I thank you, dear Lord, for your grace. I ask for your help as we engage this week, sometimes not knowing, but in this spiritual battle. I pray that you would glorify yourself through your people. Please, God, receive all glory, and would you help us, grant us faith and repentance that we might be more like Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For further sermons and more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.